Welcome to the Get More Success Show. He's a guy who never measured a man's success by the size of his wife. Uh, let's get ready to rumble! It's showtime. 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 It's showtime. Showtime! And now, here is your host, Warwick Merry. Welcome back to the Get More Success Show. Today, I'm uh, actually very honoured to be speaking with Axe Rawlinson. Axe, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you very much. Nice to be here. Now, Axe is a man of adventure. He doesn't do anything lightly. He has uh, been one of the few to scale Mount Everest, and coming up in the not-too-distant future, he's doing one heck of a canoe paddle. So uh, I'm going to start off... Uh, with as I do with nearly every show, which is by asking you, Axe, how do you define success? As someone who's scaled mountains, paddled rivers, done some amazing stuff, how do you define success? Oh, well, good question. Um, but for me, I'd say um, the main thing is really that um, that I'm happy. Um, that I'm happy with myself and uh, with my home life, with my wife and uh, my family. Um, so really success for me because um, I'm very passionate about adventure being a part of my life but success um, I call I call myself successful on my adventure life when when three things occur um, when I have a great adventure first of all but these three things are I don't go broke um, I uh, don't get divorced and I don't kill myself in the process so if I get the balance of those, I guess it's four things, um, then uh, I, I define it as uh, myself as being successful. And, and that's a very uh, full-on uh, description. You know, having fun with the adventure, don't get a divorce, uh, don't kill yourself and don't go broke. Um, yeah, no, that, that's sound like some very good measures. So uh, tell me about some of your adventures. I know you've uh, climbed Mount Everest and, you know, it, it takes about four words to say climbed Mount Everest, uh, three words actually, but I'm sure there's a whole lot more to it. So tell us why on earth would you decide that uh, here I want to climb Mount Everest? Yeah, well, well Mount Everest is just um, one one climb um, in my in my uh, climbing career, if you want to use that term, and um, unfortunately, it's the one that most people seem to remember and want to talk about the most. But um, basically, in, in, a, in a nutshell, um, I started life uh, as a rugby player, and I am originally from New Zealand, and uh, I played rugby for 25 years. And when I moved to Singapore, I played for the national team here and played in um, international sevens tournaments. Uh, around the region. I was playing in the Hong Kong Sevens when I had a very bad injury and broke my leg and dislocated my ankle um, back in 2002 and it ended, effectively ended my rugby playing career. And from that point, um, I was a bit depressed at the time because for, for me, I it was my passion. It was everything that I wanted to do in my life. It drove me um, in terms of how I lived my life and, and my friends were all from that circle. And I definitely didn't want to stop playing rugby, but uh, this external event, if you like, with this injury um, occurred and it, and it forced me out of it. And it, it forced me to look for new new passions and new directions in life. And that's that's when I really found the, um, the world of mountaineering. And uh, over uh, 15 years since that time, uh, I, I 
climbed all over the world on every continent and except Antarctica, which I hope to get to one day. And um, it really has been a fantastic journey. And uh, because it was because I was passionate, I found this passion again. Um, when you're passionate about something, you you're not you don't really want to take shortcuts uh, in the process to to get to the top of things. So I just enjoyed the learning the learning process. I called it doing my climbing apprenticeship. I climbed very small mountains initially, and I always preferred to climb mountains that were within my capabilities rather than to pay for lots of guides or support to to do things that were, were outside my capability um, at the time. So I basically really uh, went from the ground up, if you like, and then Mount Everest was the culmination of it, like a 12-year journey where the mountains I climbed got bigger and harder and more challenging. And it took me two attempts to get to the summit of Mount Everest in 2011. I had a very bad expedition, almost died when I got pulmonary edema, went back in 2012 and um, stood on the summit. So it was just uh, Mount Everest, if you like, was just a, a culmination of a very satisfying uh, journey over uh, 12 years. Right. So in that 12 years of climbing and, and the many mountains on many continents, what was the mountain that gave you the most challenges? Maybe n- not just mountaineering, but also personal challenges. Um, yeah, I think um, two mountains for me really stick in my mind. Uh, the first is Mount Aoraki Mount Cook in New Zealand, New Zealand's highest mountain. Uh, I'd always wanted to climb it for, for many years, for for uh, for about seven years, um, even when I first started climbing and I first started taking my first climbing courses um, in New Zealand Southern Alps, I looked up at uh, Mount Cook and uh, I thought, wow, what would it be like to climb that? And it's really an imposing mountain uh, to look at, um, even from a distance. Um, and so I was very scared of it, but very attracted to it at the same time. And it took me seven years, really, until I built up enough skill and got enough confidence to attempt to climb it. So um, when you wait for something um, that long and, and you have to battle your fears um, to, um, um, to, to get over, you know, that, that, that mental struggle to, to take on something which really scares you, it's uh, very satisfying when you can actually successfully achieve it. The other one is uh, Mount Everest because I'd, I'd wanted to climb Mount Everest. I had an enormous interest in Mount Everest, all, everything about it, the history of climbing, the expeditions. I just read book after book and just lapped up every little piece of Mount Everest knowledge that I could find for many, many years. And then when I went to finally uh, worked up enough courage to take on the, the challenge of going to Everest and raising the money and getting the permits and permissions, etc., uh, I had a terrible expedition, and um, and you know it, it was uh, like I said before. I got pulmonary edema, altitude sickness, and it went terribly wrong. And my dream, this thing that was meant to be my dream of going to Everest, all came crashing down in a big heap. So going back in the second year, and then successfully summiting Everest uh, was also enormously um, gratifying as well because it was it was a massive challenge. So those two mountains, Aoraki Mount Cook and Mount Everest, are really um, the two that stick in my mind. Right. And, you know, for a lot of people, their hobbies, people say, oh, my hobby's dangerous. But your, well, this is almost your profession. It's life-threatening. Like, these these climbs, even on, you know, everyone knows Mount Everest is very, very dangerous. But some of the other mountains are equally, if not more so, dangerous. So how do you, how do you manage that? How do you manage your... The mitigate your risks of the the physical danger, but also get your mind around the danger that is presented by these things. Yeah, um, the 
the danger uh, the dangerous part of, of mountaineering is um, is something which is is quite it's a double-edged sword because in one way it attracts me it, it attracts me to um, the sport because it makes it much more real and your training and preparation has to be much more real but on the other hand um, sometimes I hate it um, especially when I'm there because uh, I go I, I climb mountains because I want to live um, not because I want to die mm. you know it's a way of me um, getting the most out of life and when I'm out there I, I feel enormously alive and it uh, keeps me motivated and it really is a way of, of living my life to the fullest and I, I uh, and, and every mountaineer that I know um, is very very much along these same lines in terms of none of them have none of us have death wishes we we are all doing because we want to live not because we want to die so it's a difficult thing to to get your head around the risk especially once you start having children and you start to see accidents occurring around you and you start to see dead people um, it brings it all home about how how much the risk is and what the consequences are of uh, of making mistakes so I do um, I do struggle with that and I would say the easiest way to answer your question is it's um, a, for me a discussion about risk is pointless unless you talk about reward along with it so for me the reward factor has to be much much higher than the risk um, so that's why I, I won't I won't just go and climb any mountain at all in the world just because I love mountaineering for me I focus on specific peaks which um, grab my imagination they capture my attention they capture my motivation and I'll focus heavily on those and I'll train um, as hard as I can to prepare and mitigate all the risks before I go there. Now you, you talked about under mountaineers um, getting injuries etc what about yourself Do you, you've been mountaineering now for you said 12 to, to 14 years or so. Are you still quite functional? Um, yeah, I mean, compared to playing rugby for 25 years, mountaineering has been very kind to me. Um, so, uh, um, but of course, the worst the worst um, thing that happened to me is when I got pulmonary edema, high altitude pulmonary edema, which is very serious at the time. Um, but I, I recovered from that. But I've, I've also had um, one very serious fall, uh, well, potential fall, um, when I was climbing, when my actually my partner fell. Uh, when we were roped together high up on a very skinny um, icy knife edge ridge and he fell off the opposite side of the ridge and I only just managed to save him because um, I, I dropped o over the opposite side of the ridge. Right. Um, so th that, was the, that was the kind of accident that, um, that still makes me think today, four years later on, about, um, about the risk and whether it's worth it or not. Mm. So accidents like that, um, basically, they only end one way. Uh, if, you fall, if you fall for 500 metres, then um, you're not too worried about what you're going to break because you won't be alive anymore. Mm. So, yeah, it's, um, it's, uh, <laughs> I, I would say I'm fairly lucky so far that um, I'm still fairly fit and healthy. Yep. Um, and so, because mountain climbing is, I, you know, I speak to people who have done it and they talk about that sense of, of being alive. And you said it very early on, the balance, whether it's a success, has to be around, you know, do I, am I still married? Am I still alive? So you've, you've got two young kids, is that correct? I have uh, twin girls, yes. Fantastic. And how old are they? Now they're only um, 10 weeks old, actually. Fantastic. So, um, how has that impacted on your future of mountain climbing? Yeah, um, I would say it definitely makes me think much more carefully 
about the the risk versus reward um, situation, and uh, I would probably it wouldn't be comfortable at the moment uh, going back on an Everest expedition, for example, this mm-hmm. year. Uh, for both the time away from the family and the risk, especially when they're so young. Mm. But having said that, um, over the last three years, I became more interested after climbing Mount Everest in actually uh, long human-powered journeys, which involved um, ending or starting uh, on the summit of a mountain and then traveling overland um, to the summit of another mountain. I called these journeys peak-to-peak journeys. Right. And three, year, three years ago, um, uh, I started having this idea of, because I've been living in Singapore for many years, I'm originally from New Zealand, uh, and I've been getting more and more into these human-powered journeys. And as I was flying in the plane back to New Zealand once, I was looking at the map on the aeroplane, and I thought, wow, what would it be like to travel all the way from Singapore back to New Zealand, completely 100% by human power? So I started planning that three years ago, uh, and um, the babies came along, well, you know, nine months ago now, as they do, and um, uh, I'm planning to leave in January of uh, next year on this expedition, which is a long and difficult expedition. Yeah. Uh, and, and I have the kids, kids, kids now at home as well, so it's definitely motivating me to train and prepare much, uh, well, as, as well as I can, because uh, definitely going to be coming home from this one. I don't want any, anything to happen, of course. Uh, that um, that would jeopardise that situation in terms of the family. So tell me about that journey, like uh, peak to peak. So what's the peak in Singapore that you're departing from? Well, um, Singapore is um, only the highest point here is 163 metres above sea level. Well, that's the easy so, bit then, isn't it? Just 100 metres. Yeah, Jeez, I could yeah. nearly do that. You could do that. You'd probably stand at ground level because you're a very tall, handsome man, Warwick, and a touch the top. Um, so, uh, I'm not actually calling this journey a peak to peak, uh, because, uh, the peak in Singapore is so small. So I'm calling it from home to home instead, oh, great. um, because Singapore's uh, been here for 18 years. It's a home now and um, New Zealand is my original home. So I'm calling it from home to home. Right. Yeah. So this is basically around about a 12,000 kilometer journey in which I will be using an ocean rowing boat to row from Singapore 4,000 kilometres all the way down through the Indonesian archipelago to Darwin in West Australia. Um, and then uh, from Darwin, I plan to ride my bicycle for another 3,500, 4,000 kilometres across Australia to Sydney, where I will then get back in my boat and attempt to row across the Tasman, which is uh, in, a, in a straight line, it's 2,500 kilometres, but it's pretty hard to go straight in that stretch of water. So, yeah, it's uh, quite a demanding trip, and um, but one hell of an adventure, and uh, I really am really excited about it. Yeah, that sounds fantastic. And um, is the, the canoe trip from Singapore to Darwin, because that's in more tropical waters, is that going to be mm-hmm. easier than going across the Tasman? Um, yes and no. Actually, it's a rowing boat, not a canoe. Just a small technicality. Oh, sorry, got to get that right. Yep. Because I've right, seen yeah. you've put it. You've put a couple of pictures out there of the mold because it, it's. You've actually built this boat yourself as well, yeah? Or had the boat? No, built? no. I've had the boat built in um, in, Lon- in London. It's a uh, specifically made um, ocean rowing boat. It uh, costs one hundred and forty thousand Singapore dollars. Uh, it's made of a blend of carbon fiber and fiberglass. It's got a solar panels on it and battery charges um um and the water distillation like you got your own little d-cell plant that that and it's not little like it's a significant d-cell plant as well that's right it can produce um it can produce 30 liters of fresh drinking water in an hour 
uh, if you have enough power to run it. Um, so we only we'd only have enough power to possibly run it for an hour a day. But for there's two people on the boat, thirty liters is enough uh, for us for a day. Yeah, fantastic. Um, and then cycling, cycling from Darwin to Sydney, like Darwin, the minimum temperatures up there in the high twenty degrees Celsius. So cycling is going to fry you. Yes, it might be a bit hot up there, so um, I might have to take all my clothes off to try and keep cool or work. I, I'm not sure. I haven't spent that much time in that part of the world. If you've got any advice for me how to keep cool. <laughs> my advice, get on a plane. Um, so, <laughs> so you're going to go from like Darwin down into the centre and then across, or what? do you know the, the route yet you're taking? Yeah, I mean, fairly much as direct as possible. And um, I see uh, up the top up there, there's there's not too many different options you can take to yeah. get across Australia. So fairly much the most direct route as, as we can to get across, really. Yeah. Fantastic. Um, and so how how do you how do you make this work? Like, as, as you said, the boat's costing a whole lot of money. So obviously you've been getting sponsors, et cetera, out there. Um, and... So how do you how do you put a project like this together? Like the support crew alone must be significant to be moving the boat over to Sydney, etc. Yeah, so that's a very good question. And um, projects like this has has a budget of quarter of a million Singapore dollars. Um, so it's really is um, like like any massive um, like running a business or setting up a business. Um, or, or run, running a massive project with a massive budget with a high risk of uncertainty uh, as well. You need to form a good team around you, get people on board. You need to better raise money. Um, you need to do a lot of planning. You need a massive amount of energy um, in the build-up. It takes years to, to plan an expedition like this properly. So yeah. I my, um, my one... Um, my secret weapon to doing these kind of things is that every single day I do something. Right. Every single day um, I do something towards the expedition, um, at least probably an, hour, an hour's work every single day. And that's just not physical training as well. I train five days a week, um, only an hour a day at the moment in my physical training because I've got twin daughters, which take up a lot of time. But um, as we're outside the, 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 um, the physical training, the planning and preparation, every single day I do something. And you've got to keep them open momentum up with things like this you can't let you can't let it slide for one month and then suddenly jump in on a saturday morning and, and do a whole day's work on it because you will have uh, forgotten where you were you will have lost that momentum you will have um it'll take you half a day to try and remember where you are so really important every single day to do a little bit of work and it's amazing what you can get through if you just keep chipping away chipping away chipping away at it do you find because you know as you say you're going to get in in your um uh, get in your boat uh, in January 2017, that's correct? Yes, correct. So you're getting in the boat in January 2017. How do you maintain the excitement? I get you, you're doing some stuff every day, but are you challenged to, to maintain the excitement about it? Does it does it feel like, oh, that's, that's ages away? Um, no, it doesn't. And um, the great thing about finding things you're really passionate about, about in your life is that um, that, that Maintaining the excitement is, is not an issue. Um, so I could honestly say there is not one single day where I haven't felt excited about the project and what it's doing because it really is it is my passion in life. It's, it's what drives me. It's, uh, it's so exciting. I just can't wait to get um, on the boat in January. And even though to some people you might think, wow, that's still 10 months away. That's a long time away. But I've been planning this for three years. And actually mm. that 10 months, I have to get the boat here. 
I've got um, training. I've got to do first aid courses. I've got to do sea survival courses. I've got to do um, offshore um, planning um, um, yacht master theory courses. I've got to do mini training expeditions, at least three of those. I've got to get to um, know how to operate all the electronics in the boat. Plus, I've got to do a lot of physical preparation and all the mini expeditions as well. So, ten months is actually not not a, not a very long time. It's going yeah. to be a very very busy time in the build up. Now you're going to be on your own, yeah. Like so, it's just you in the boat, just you on the bike. You're not going to have a support boat tootling along I'm- next to you just in case, are you? No, there's no so there. It's what we call an unsupported expedition. Um, so, and there are two reasons for that. The first one is that it would just be prohibitively expensive to have a support boat yeah. um, coming along with you. And, and number two, it, um, it takes away 99% of the sense of the adventure for me if I have a support boat yeah. um, flying along with us. The reason I'm doing it um, is to have an adventure and having a support boat there, which you know if something went wrong, you could just jump off and swim 20 meters across to and get on board would, would, um, would make it would reduce the the commitment level to a point where it's um, it's no longer really an adventure that I, that I want yeah. to take part in. Have you so have you, have you started thinking of your next adventure after this one? Well, I'm always two or three expeditions in front of my current um, <laughs> expedition. So, so what are some of the other ideas you've had? You know, if, if you're willing to share some of them, because I get you know you might be trying to keep someone secret for you know Guinness Book of Records kind of stuff. But what kind of alternative ventures have you been thinking of? Yeah. Um, well, firstly, uh, I'm not into um, in records or Guinness Book of Records stuff. That kind of stuff doesn't um, yank my chain at all, so to speak. I, I prefer um, exploring the world's more remote um, parts using my own humid power. Mm-hmm. So whether people have been there before or not, um, it, it doesn't really. It's not. It's not. Um, not a big driver for me. So. Uh, other expeditions, though, um, really focus around um, the thing with human power in different parts of the world. I'd love to do something in Antarctica. I have a, my eye on a, um, on a specific route in Antarctica, which involves a peak-to-peak peak kind of trip. Um, plus, I'm starting to think now more of things which my um, I can bring my family along with as well. Um, getting them involved in this um, whole human-powered thing. They obviously wouldn't be as extreme as some of the things I've done, but uh, smaller micro-adventures like weekend kind of stuff, two or three or four-day kind of stuff uh, in kayaks or on bicycles or just uh, tootling around. Um, I'd very really like to introduce them to this world and hopefully see if they find um, some of the spark or some of the the happiness that um, that I've found through um, through travelling using my own human power. Yeah, fantastic. Um, I'm just I'm can just see these conversations already. So, oh, Dad, do we have to climb to the top of the mountain? You'll bloody enjoy it. Up you go. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> yes, so, that's right. I can imagine it too. As a passionate an adventurer, and it, and it sounds like you know rugby was a start, and and in fact. Your your accident in rugby actually was a good thing because it's then taking you to, to different a different level. Where what do you wish you'd you'd known right back at the beginning? What what are say three keys to your success that you wish you'd known earlier? Oh, that, that's that's a very tough question. That's a very tough question, actually. Um, you know, to be completely honest, um, I think life, my life has been about a journey and about um, finding things out about myself along the way. 
because I wasn't born a mountaineer or an adventurer, and I didn't come from a family who uh, has a strong background in this kind of thing. So I didn't have strong role models um, really defined. So I really found my own path. And um, I, I, looking back on it, I love the journey. I love, I love the way that I kind of bumbled my way into it and then found this passion. So I don't, I, I find it hard to answer your question and say there's three things I wish I knew first because the finding those things along the journey has been um, has been one of the wonderful parts of it. You know, if you if you uh, can can find something, it's, it's, it can be very difficult to find your passion in life. And I often get this, asked this question from people. You know, I don't know what I really want to do with my life. I'm not sure. And I say, well, that's part of the journey. You just have to get out there and you have to try things. You're not going to find your passion in life lying on your couch watching TV, eating potato chips, unless. <laughs> Unless lying on your couch watching TV eating potato chips is your passion, you won't find it lying on the couch eating potato chips watching TV. You have to get out there, try different things. Some of them may work, some of them may won't work. But eventually, if you uh, if you keep trying long enough, you will find something which I've found in my life which drives you. So, yeah, I'm not sure if that answers your question, but no, I don't no, no, really... that's that's great. It's you know, I think you know what you say has some real truth to it in that. Sometimes it is going through and making the mistakes that makes you better for what you you are doing. And without having made them, you know, if someone had told you what the solution was up front, you, I know for me, I wouldn't have believed them anyway and would have made the same mistake anyway. So it, it helps sure. you create it. Yeah, yeah. Yep. So how does, you know, you said right at the beginning that you want to make sure that every adventure you come away with still married. How does your wife deal with the fact that you are off doing these Risky things, having mitigated the risk as much as you can, um, that uh, can be quite dangerous at times. How does she deal with that? Yeah, I mean, it's um, it's very difficult on your partner and also, you know, your parents and other people uh, as well. It's, it's probably more difficult on them in terms of worry than it is on me. Um, so the one thing I'd say with my wife is at first I'm very lucky that she's very understanding. And the second thing is that... Um, you know, I, I, I am this person and, and when I met my wife, I was an adventurer and, a, and it was my passion already. Um, and, and I didn't turn into this after we met. Mm-hmm. Um, so so I was very honest with my wife um, right from day one when we very first met. Actually, on our very first date ever, uh, I had to cut it short to run off home to watch a, a Mount Everest documentary on television. <laughs> so, so she... She knew right from uh, the very first date um, what my passion in life was, and I've been very honest with her all the way through about that. And and in in return for um, my honesty and also for my wife seeing um, how hard that I train, because no one else actually sees the amount of um, commitment, the amount of time, the amount of dedication to training, the getting up at 5 o'clock in the mornings, um, the amount of work you put in apart from your partner who you live with. The only thing that other people see is the photograph on top of a mountain. They think, oh, that's glorious. That's romantic. But the reality of it is completely different, of course. So she sees that. And because she sees that and she knows who I am, she she trusts me. And, you know, trust is the biggest emotional um, motivating force um, there is. So when she when she tells me, uh, when I leave on an expedition, you know, I support you to go on this and, and I trust that you'll make the right decisions so that you're going to come home to me. I don't think there could be any more powerful, powerful motivating force to want to come back to her. Yeah, yeah, that's fantastic. Is she adventurous? Like, has she done some of the, the more 
maybe the smaller mountain climbs or anything with you? My wife, I would say, um, for being brought up in Singapore, which is a place with very limited opportunities to get into hills or mountains, is a very adventurous lady. Uh, and uh, the only thing with her, though, there are some constraints. One of those is that she has to be able to wash her hair every night. <laughs> So based, that's the main one. Based on, the, based on the, that, that constraint, we have done a lot of uh, adventures together, but we always have to end up every night in a place where she can wash her hair. So uh, we've done some nice treks in New Zealand and um, in Malaysia, and we've climbed some small like volcanoes around the place. And, um, yeah, she, she really enjoys um, those smaller-type micro-adventure trips. And as well, we've done some nice cycle touring trips as well, which uh, for like four or five day cycle touring trips, which during some of them, she uh, got a very sore backside and hated me for brief periods. But at the end of it, when we finished, she always had a smile on her face and asked me, when are we going to do the next one? Fantastic. That's great. That is great. So um, what's the plan for you? So when you're, you know, 75 and and twaddling around the the old age home, what adventures are you going to do then? When I'm 75, toddling around the old age home, um, I'll probably be looking out the window, um, seeing if I can see a hill somewhere or seeing if there's a stream um, running past outside and then wondering what it would be like, where that stream leads to, if I had a rubber tube, if somebody could bring me in a rubber tire tube, if I filled it with air and I um, jumped in the water, if I went for a paddle down that, where would it lead me to? Um, you know, looking out into the distance to a hill, wondering how long it would take me to walk up that hill. Um, I just have an amazingly um, wandering mind, especially when I look out um, into the natural world. So I don't, I don't think that will ever change. Curious, curious. I'll be curious. Yeah, great. So the wandering mind, wandering spirit, and take your body where you can. Yeah, yeah. I like, I like that. Axe, thank you so much for your time today. If people want to find out more about some of the challenges you've done, about finding out your, uh, more about you, and if they want to uh, support you in your, your home-to-home journey, what's the best way they can get in touch with you? Yeah, um, so I have a, a website called www.axeoneverest.com. Um, and that's um, that has all my expeditions on it, and people can follow me in real time during my journeys with the map displays, for example, real time tracking displays. And then, of course, I'm on Facebook. You can find the Facebook and YouTube and Twitter links from there as well. Uh, and my email address x at axoneverest.com. Feel easy to remember as well. And you know, I I um, always like people. Um, I always like to hear stories from people of seen some of the things I've done and said, well, that looked like a great idea. And um, I thought about what you'd done there. And I went out the weekend and I got on my bicycle and I, I did something myself. It inspired me to go and do something myself. Those kind of um, stories really make me smile um, to hear that, um, you know, maybe influence some people positively to get out and explore our beautiful world and not burn um, non-renewable uh, energy sources. Yeah, right. So basically it's get out there, create your own adventure. And at the very yeah. least, you know, have a look at Axe's adventure, but, uh, you know, create your own. Yeah, yeah, I'm much happier for people. Not It's not all about me. It's about them actually um, getting out there and having their own adventures, coming up with their own ideas. Fantastic. Axe, thanks so much for your time today. It's been a pleasure to have you here. Thank you, Warwick. Really appreciated it. You have a lovely day down there in Australia. Thank you so much. You've been listening to the Get More Success Show with Warwick Mary. Look forward to having you back here next time. <laughs>
Thanks for listening to the Get More Success Show with Warwick Merry. Continue the conversation with other successful people over at getmoresuccess.com. That's where you'll find all the show notes as well as a link to our Facebook group that we'd love for you to join. Getmoresuccess.com is also where you'll find all the information you need to connect with me, your host, Warwick Merry. Thanks for listening, and we hope you can get more success.